it is a pattern that's becoming all too familiar. In the days following tragic incidents involving persons with severe mental illnesses such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, blame seems to be grounded in myth and misconception, and it seems to be placed everywhere that isn't needed. Let's consider the case of Kelly Thomas, the individual, the homeless individual with schizophrenia who uh, died at the hands of the Fullerton police. Well, in the days following the event, the American Spectator magazine questioned why there was, quote, virtually no criticism of Thomas's divorced parents for allowing their schizophrenic son to roam the streets. But there's no parental allowing involved, as uh, anyone who has dealt with loved ones who suffer from bipolar or schizophrenia. And of course, Kelly Thomas was a 36-year-old man. On today's Justice or Just Us, we are going to try to use the incident of the Kelly Thomas case, as well as other cases involving uh high-profile interactions with law enforcement and individuals with schizophrenia and bipolar. We're going to try to use these events as uh, teaching moments to find out about the illnesses, to find out what are some of the barriers to treatment and what services and laws are available to help individuals and their families find treatment. Uh, my guest this morning is Carla Jacobs. She is a board member of the Treatment Advocacy Center, which is a national nonprofit organization dedicated to eliminating barriers to the timely and effective treatment of severe mental illness. The organization promotes laws, policies, and practices for the delivery of psychiatric care, and it supports the development of innovative treatments for and research into the causes of severe and persistent psychiatric illnesses, such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Ms. Jacobs' mental health advocacy activities are impressive and extensive and uh, certainly could occupy the entire hour, but she's uh, serving two terms as an elected board member of the NAMI, which of course is the National Alliance of Mental Illness, National Board of Directors. Uh, she helped that organization establish itself as the most formidable grassroots mental health advocacy group in the country. She's co-founder of the Treatment Advocacy Center, which we've just discussed. She's a member of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors Task Force on the Incarcerated Mentally Ill, and uh, she's a past commissioner of mental health for the County of Los Angeles, and she joins us this morning. Uh, good morning, Carla. Good morning, Jared. And can I call you Carla? Please. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, this is a really, uh, really controversial topic. It shouldn't be controversial, but uh, there seems to be a lot of myth and misconception about mental illness, mental disease. I mean, we don't even necessarily agree on what terms to use. So since one of our objectives is to dispel some of the misconceptions about severe mental illnesses, perhaps we should begin um, with getting some terms straight and uh, getting some working definitions. And uh, let's focus on schizophrenia and bipolar disorders. So if you could begin by um, explaining these illnesses to our listeners, I think that would help us establish a groundwork. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that myths abound is because there is mental health and then there is what we call mental illness. The uh, disorders that you and I are talking about, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, are neurobiological brain disorders. They um, are uh, illnesses uh, 
that actually function, um, impact the functioning of the brain. Schizophrenia, um, schizophrenia is, uh, well, there are several different types of schizophrenia, but it is frequently marked with hallucinations, delusions, um, thought uh, uh, impairment. Uh, bipolar disorder is what we used to call manic depression um, in its classic state. It uh, represents itself with extreme highs, um, mania, where the person uh, may very well think that uh, they're going to discover a cure for cancer, and then extreme lows, uh, depressions that can actually lead to uh, suicide. Um, bipolar can also have psychotic features where uh, the person is experiencing an altered reality uh, through psychosis. And so um, mental health is something we all want to have. Mental illness uh, definitely is something none of us want to have. I think it's always difficult or problematic when uh, we as a culture use these terms so flippantly. So, you know, if someone's got a scattered mind, they'll say, oh, I'm acting schizophrenic. Or if someone is is really happy at one moment and then kind of depressed later in the day, they'll say, you know, I'm manic depressive. But we would never speak that flippantly about something like cancer or AIDS or, or you know, diabetes or any other uh, real illness. But I think maybe the 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 ease with which we we use these kinds of terms, or people, you know, if, if someone's worried about something, they'll say they're OCD, and not realizing that these are are very uh, they can be very severe um, illnesses that really impact people's lives and ability to function. And very definitely, and um, you know, I think I'm a bit older than you. I came out of uh, the crazy hazy days of the 60s, and it was actually in the 1960s that um, we as a society for a while forgot that mental illness were actual medical conditions. Uh, Some of the thought processes that were running around at the time was that uh, severe mental illness was a sane reaction to an insane society a label that a totalitarian government puts on uh, a social dissident. Um, And my favorite, that mental illness just plain didn't exist. It was a myth. Uh, Those were all ideas, but they were not reality. But that sort of thought process got embedded in our social consequence. It was at that time also that the um, first medications for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, were being developed. And um, a lot of hopes and dreams were floating around. Uh, Today, those hopes and dreams are rather threadbare, and uh, we see people with schizophrenia like Kelly Thomas, living on the streets and doing without any sort of effective treatment whatsoever. 
So what happens to to individuals with uh, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder? I know that your website has uh, has some statistics about you know the percentage of the homeless population that suffers from these illnesses. Can you give our listeners a bit of um, that kind of context? Well, certainly, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are like other uh, medical disorders; they are treatable. And the earlier that uh, treatment uh, is started, the better the outcome. Um, But because they are brain-based disorders, a percentage, up to above 50% of people with severe mental illness, have executive function where they do not recognize that they're ill. We used to think this lack of insight was willful denial. Um, Nobody wants to have a mental illness or shame um, because of the stigma that surrounds mental illness. We now know that it is actually a symptom of the impaired brain. Um, There's the term anosognosia which basically means that the person cannot recognize that they're ill. In the 1960s, when um, we were hoping that uh, all people with mental illness would be able to line up for good community mental health care, um, we forgot, we didn't recognize that there was going to be this population that was just too ill to accept the services that we had. And is it that that because there's an altered reality that there is no conscious awareness that someone is ill? It's because um, what it's appears... A bit, Go ahead. A little bit more complex than that, Jarrett, and I will be more than pleased to uh, refer you to have a psychiatrist on your show. Um, but... Basically, the brain is the computer of the body. And my brain can diagnose when my leg is broken, but my leg can't take over for the brain and diagnose when it's got a problem. And so if you can't recognize that you're ill, um, usually that means that you won't accept treatment when it's offered to you. I want to remind listeners, if they're just tuning in, this is KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Carla Jacobs. We're talking about uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and uh, some of the myths and misconceptions about it and about seeking treatment for it. Um, so without talking about, you know, treatment, because neither of us have the the training or expertise as a a psychiatrist would. But you mentioned, you know, ideally people would, as you said, line up and recognize that there's an illness and and get the proper medication or whatnot. But because there is this this disconnect between, you know, the illness and and recognition of it, um, what tends to happen to uh, people who have schizophrenia and bipolar but don't recognize the illness or don't seek out treatment? Where do they end up? Well, um, where they have ended up, if they've, they've ended up um, on our streets like Kelly, um, in our jails like Kelly had been in our jails, and in our prisons. 
people with uh, schizophrenia are three times more likely to be in jail now than in hospital. This has been an increasing problem. Um, in 1983, I think about 6% of the people in jail had a diagnosable mental illness. But recent studies have um, put that more like now 20%. Um, the uh, reality is that uh, we have been closing uh, our state hospitals, of course, but we have also been closing our acute care psychiatric beds. And as those beds have closed, um, jails have become the hospital's last resort. So our criminal justice system is becoming uh, the largest uh, mental facilities, it seems like, mental illness facilities. Lee Baca, who's the sheriff in Los Angeles County, says that he runs the largest psychiatric hospital in the United States. And he's right. Um, Over 4,000 of his inmates at any one time are going to have a severe mental illness. But the problem with that, of course, is double-fold. First of all, a jail can never be a hospital. Second of all, Before a person goes into jail, there has to be an arrest. And so we have uh, criminalized people with mental illness. Um, The vast majority are arrested for fairly minor crimes, you know, crimes that are uh, perhaps symptomatic of their uh, living circumstances and their illness, um, trespassing, uh, simple assault, Uh, uh, petty theft, Um, but when a law enforcement officer in the community is confronted with a person with mental illness, there's only basically three options that law enforcement officer has. He can do nothing, but the merchants are complaining. He can take the person to the hospital but the criteria for hospital is extremely high, and if there isn't a hospital available, then jail becomes a viable alternative. And so let's talk about the the options available. Let's talk about the law. Um, How has the law changed? I know uh, during the, you know, from the Carter administration to the Reagan administration, laws about uh, commitment and so forth changed. If you could take our listeners through, you know, a little bit of the history and and what is that criteria that you mentioned in order for a hospital to actually be able to keep uh, someone with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder uh, inside with a bed? Certainly. It was... um In the 1960s, when, as I said, we were uh, expanding our community mental health options and um, some medications had been developed, and we had all of these hopes. So um, with all of those hopes that were going on in the community that uh, uh, the vast majority of people with mental illness would be able to accept a voluntary community services alone, the um, treatment laws in California were changed. Uh, prior to the passage of the Lanterman-Petrus Short Act, or as we call it, the LPS, um, 
commitment to a psychiatric hospital was based on need for treatment. Uh, in the late 1960s, that was changed so that um, a person could not be placed in the hospital unless that person was dangerous to self, dangerous to others, or an exceedingly narrowly interpreted definition of grave disability, which basically um, is looked upon as if the person cannot utilize food, shelter, or clothing if that food, shelter, or clothing is uh, supplied to them. Uh, the problem, the problem with that um, change is that uh, it was talking about behavioral um, items, uh, danger to self, danger to others, rather than symptomatic. Does the person recognize they have an illness? Can that person access treatment on their own? Um, the other problem is that uh, the vast majority of people with mental illness aren't dangerous. They may be very, very ill. And so um, a law that was trying to um, fulfill the hope of community treatment actually ended up reinstitutionalizing people by taking them from the hospital and putting them in our jails. And so what is the status of the law today? What could, um, I want to, you know, be able to spend a couple minutes, you know, looking specifically at the Kelly Thomas case in case listeners are not familiar with it and maybe the Jared Loeffner case or any of the others that you think are, are teachable moments. But what could law enforcement have done? What could the community have done in, say, a case like Kelly Thomas? What is the law in California? What's the law in, in Orange County? Uh, the, um, in 2002, the state legislature did reform the Lanterman-Petra Short Act in order to make it more um, community-based. And uh, they enacted a bill known as Assisted Outpatient Treatment, or LORIS Law. Um, assisted Outpatient Treatment is exactly for individuals like Kelly Thomas. Kelly revolved through minor jailings. Um, he revolved through hospitalizations. And when he came out of those jailings and those hospitals due to the severity of his illness, he wasn't able to stay in treatment. And so under assisted outpatient treatment, a person who revolves through multiple hospitalizations or multiple jailings due to their arrest can be court-ordered to participate in an intensive community treatment program, a multidisciplinary team approach where professionals actually go out to the person and help that person stabilize on medication, find housing, um, whatever is necessary for that individual to stay safe in the community and get well. The court mandates the treatment program, 
And so while that court mandate may be looked upon as an order on the individual, what it really does is it introduces a level of accountability in the mental health um, system that isn't there right now. Um, the mental health system has to, is obligated by that court order to provide that individual with the treatment that they need in the community to keep them out of jail and to keep them out of the hospital. Uh, when California passed this law, however, it um, was optional to the counties. And so each county board of supervisors has to pass a resolution to implement it in their county. Orange County has not done that yet. Um, the Board of Supervisors, as a result of uh, Kelly, um, is looking very seriously at implementing an assisted outpatient treatment program. And, um, and if now, Kelly had not been on the streets, Kelly would not be dead. And now, when, when we talk about assisted treatment, could the patient r refuse the treatment? I mean, if, if could the patient decide not to take medication, for example? We often hear that, you know, when you take medication, you believe that, okay, you're better now, and so, of course, you then stop taking the medication. You know, the person, um, yes, in the community, all of us have the right not to take medication. But what has been discovered through similar programs like this is that uh, it increases medication compliance by 90%. Um, there is a team there that is authorized and required to help that person take the medication, to supervise the medication, to get the person to their appointments, to help that person get their prescription filled. And so... Um, that uh, intensive service that the person is receiving increases the medication compliance substantially. There's also the therapeutic jurisprudence of the court order. Um, I may not think I have a mental illness, but uh, you know what? I'm pretty law-abiding. And if the court tells me I have to do something, um, I'm going to most likely try. And if I have that supervision and I have that support, I'm most likely going to be able to succeed a lot better than uh, I would on my own. Laura's Law was uh, modeled after Kendra's Law in New York, and that has been a much-studied um, assisted outpatient treatment program um, the combination of intensive community treatment and court order has um, reduced psychiatric hospitalizations by over three quarters. It's reduced uh, homelessness by about 75%, 83% um, decline in arrests, 87% decline in incarcerations. These are individuals that were not surviving in the community system well prior to 
assisted outpatient treatment. And um, the benefit to the individual and the benefit to society shows in the statistics. I want to remind listeners they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Justice. We're speaking with Carla Jacobs from the Treatment Advocacy Center, taking a look at uh, some of the barriers to treatment for mental illnesses and uh, steps that could be taken to uh, overcome these barriers. Let's talk about some of these high-profile cases for a minute and see, you know, um, you know, I, I hate to play Monday morning quarterback, but that's what makes certain things teachable moments. Um, if you could tell our listeners a bit about Kelly Thomas, because that's really the one that's most uh, in the minds of uh, people who live in Orange County and surrounding communities. Um, who was Kelly Thomas? What did he suffer from? And um, if you could comment, you know, we began the program with the quote from the American Spectator, where people seem to be blaming, uh, at least in part, the the parents for allowing, quote unquote, uh, Kelly Thomas to remain on the streets. Um, there's much talk about a restraining order, which suggests that he was dangerous. If you could take our listeners through it and maybe, you know, talk about some of the uh, the teachable moments of that case. Sure. I, I only know Kelly Thomas course, from the news reports, but the story in the newspapers is so similar to what other families um, experience. Kelly had schizophrenia. Um, Kelly appears to be one of the individuals with schizophrenia that doesn't have insight into their illness, that suffers that symptom, anosognosia. And um, Kelly's parents had really, really tried to get him help. Uh, But they were faced with the Lanterman-Petra Short Act that says that Kelly has to be dangerous to others or dangerous to himself before he can be hospitalized. Um, There's not much of an indication in Kelly's history that he ever was severely dangerous um, years, years, years ago. Perhaps he hit his uh, grandfather or something like that. But he, he, he wasn't dangerous. And so if you don't fit that criteria, the family has basically no options. Uh, They can't get the person into the hospital. They can't get the person to go take treatment because the person doesn't recognize they're ill. Uh, And we say as a society, it's the person's civil rights to live on the streets. Kelly was not without a home. Um, His family have clearly indicated that he could have lived with them. But he didn't want to. He wanted to live on the streets because of his illness. And, um, you know, sometimes there's also a lot of bizarre behavior that goes on with it. The restraining order, that is not, um, that's, people, families, families have to try to resort to things to get uh, um, help for their children. And so here, Kelly was not overtly dangerous. Um, 
and so therefore he didn't qualify for the hospitalization, but uh, I'm sure the family saw that he was deteriorating, and apparently a law enforcement officer told the mother, well, get a restraining order and then um, give us a call, and we can then take him into the hospital because the restraining order um, would indicate his dangerousness. You know, that's um, not part of the law, but as I said, um, families will do anything they can. They try to help, but they are um, handcuffed because of the law that says that we will not intervene based upon the severity of the person's symptoms. We have to wait until the individual um, fits these little narrow boxes that, uh, of criteria that they may very well not ever fit. Mm. And so um, there's another situation going on in California right now that uh, we haven't read that much about in Southern California, and that's Aaron Basler. Aaron very much um, is like Kelly. He's 37 years old, but he's from a very rural county, Mendocino County, and um, he has schizophrenia. His family has been trying for years to get him consistent help. Um, the family, because Aaron is an adult, uh, can't even know what's happening with um, Aaron's medical records. Um, Mendocino County is one of the counties in California that doesn't even have psychiatric beds. And so up there it's become... If you want any sort of help, the only thing you can do is try to get your relative in jail. That's really wrong. Mm. Aaron had, um, however, in San Francisco a couple of years ago, uh, thrown missives, writings over the wall of the Chinese consulate. And, and the content of that writing was very uh, delusional, very bizarre you know, that there were aliens coming down from space and such. He was arrested for that, and he had been put into a um, mental health diversion program on the arrest. Uh, during that period of time, he was on court order, and he apparently was receiving intensive um, services, and he did well. But when the probation stopped, he went off treatment. He went back up to his uh, home area in Mendocino, and he now stands accused of uh, killing two men out in the Mendocino forest and uh, is himself the subject of an extremely large manhunt. Again, that was a family who had tried and tried and tried but they were hamstrung because of the loss and because of the severity of Aaron's illness. So you are involved with the Treatment Advocacy Center. So tell our listeners about the center and then um, what you consider to be the ideal approach to, uh, to addressing uh, some of the, the gaps in treatment. Is it Laura's Law or is something else needed? 
Um, Laura's Law Assistive Outpatient Treatment is going to go far in um, filling some of the gaps because it is specifically for people who are too ill to recognize that they need the treatment. Uh, it's been fully implemented in Nevada County in California, and um, it's an amazing program the way it works because it helps the Department of Mental Health prioritize um, who is going to get uh, the quickest services. Uh, if somebody, if a family recognizes that their relative is deteriorating, does not yet reach the um, criteria for inpatient hospitalization, that family can actually go to the director of mental health and ask, please take a look at our son, our daughter. She's going downhill. The director of mental health then, or the program director, immediately gets out to the individual. It's not a case of expecting the sick person to walk to the doctor. Uh, the doctor goes to the sick person and um, assesses to see if they do qualify for assisted outpatient treatment. In the vast majority of the cases, they're able to work with that individual voluntarily to get that individual to start accepting services. And they go back. It's not just a one-time deal. They really wrap themselves around the person to try to get everything that it is that would help that person stabilize. In the few cases that the person won't accept those services, or the person is just too ill to accept those purposes, um, services, then the court can order the treatment. And as I said, it brings in a level of accountability on the Department of Mental Health, too, because right now, when a tragedy happens, it's very common that um, the uh, mental health system will say, oh, we tried to give him help, but he didn't want it. And he didn't, the tragedy, he wasn't dangerous until the tragedy occurred. So waiting for danger is just too late. And so Nevada County has discovered for every $1 that they put into the Laura's Law program through what we call Mental Health Service Act money um, and Medi-Cal, They've been able to save a dollar eighty-one in reduced hospitalizations and reduced jailings. But more than that, the people who have gone through the program are now getting well. Some of them have actually gone back to work. They're not homeless anymore, and um, so it's a lot of money. Well, I'm glad being saved, and a lot of lives are being saved. I'm glad you brought up the money because I. I was hesitant to bring it up, but, um, you know, certainly money is, is a factor I'm sure in, in funding these, these programs and, uh, in our current, uh, political and economic climate. Uh, my question to you was, uh, going to be is, has it been difficult to convince, uh, the public that con that funding of such programs is a good investment? 
I mean, I, you know, I am an yeah, educator. Has it and difficult convincing the public? Has uh, it been For di- example, uh, the public voted for the Mental Health Service Act, uh, Prop 63, where the difficulty is, is convincing the system. Um, our system always likes to fund things in boxes, and uh, if the mental health system can reduce the cost in jail, well, that doesn't accrue to the mental health system. That, that savings is going to accrue to jail. And so our systems don't work together well, but the county itself is responsible for this entire pot of money. And if the county board of supervisors can actually get a savings of a dollar eighty-one for every dollar that is expended through these funds, Mental Health Service Act and Medicaid, that isn't their money. It's coming from the state and the feds. Then that's that's uh, exactly what a county and financial uh, crisis should be doing. Finally, where can listeners turn for more information, and what should they do if they or someone they know is suffering from uh, schizophrenia or bipolar, for example? Here in um, Orange County, the first thing that we can do is get the Board of Supervisors to pass the resolution to implement Laura's Law. There is an Orange County site that is Laura's Law lawslawoc.org. That will tell your listeners about the campaign to implement Laura's Law in Orange County. To learn more about um, mental illness, uh, treatment laws, and uh, how they are applied throughout the United States, then I refer you to the Treatment Advocacy Center website. That's www treatmentadvocacycenter.org. The local NAMIs, N-A-M-I, are also a place where people can go to get one-in-one family support. Um, A lot of them have uh, support groups and educational programs. In Orange County, that uh, website is NAMIOC.org, N-A-M-I-O-C. And that stands for National Alliance on Mental Illness. Yes. Well, Carla Jacobs, I want to thank you so much for joining us and for uh, helping to clarify a uh, a lot of myths and misconceptions and uh, to uh, let people know about the laws and what steps they could take to uh, help uh, remove some of the barriers to treatment, and uh, we'll certainly have to have you uh, back on again sometime soon. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Jared, thank you very much for covering this subject. All right, and you take care. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we will be back to wrap up in just a moment. This is KUCI in Irvine. You're listening to Justice for Just Us.